0: Thank you very much for uh, coming out today. It is, it is, a, it is a great uh, pleasure and honor to be able to uh, introduce Father Lawrence Dewan, a Dominican. Um, I had the pleasure uh, uh, a number of years back in the early 90s when I was doing my graduate studies at the Catholic University of America. there's was a very eminent uh, Thomist by the name of Monsignor Whipple who was on the faculty there. And right when I arrived, to do my graduate studies he was uh, given a, a promotion of sorts into administration and so all of a sudden he wasn't going to be teaching anymore and the, and the administration was uh, I know felt very bad for the philosophy graduate students who would then be missing the, the world famous Monsignor Whipple so they, they felt something of an obligation to bring in other very eminent thinkers to replace Monsignor Whipple during those semesters while he would be gone. And I must say, while I am sorry that I didn't have Monsignor Whipple as professor, uh, a great grace that I did receive was that Father Dewan was one of the very eminent thinkers that was invited in to replace Monsignor Whipple during those years. Uh, Father Dewan is a native um, Ontarian, and he is currently an Ottawa I wanted to use those words. I had actually never heard either one of those words before <laughs> yesterday. Um, so I, I hope I actually pronounce them correctly. But um, basically, from what I can discern, Father Dewan has taught at every major university in Canada. And uh, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But he is uh, currently at the uh, Dominican College in Ottawa. He himself studied at several uh, very eminent Canadian universities under a number of eminent thinkers, one of which was Etienne Gilson. He, uh, another just um, anecdote for his standing at this point, I and many others like me, when we look at various conferences that are going on, if we see that Father Dewan was invited and is actually going to the conference, then we know that this is a serious conference that is absolutely worth going to. So one of the other remarkable things is how he has written and lectures on basically everything. So if there's a a question that I have about anything, I I know to whom I would go. I will just note his two books, Form and Being, Studies in Thomistic Metaphysics and Wisdom, Law, and Virtue, Essays in Thomistic Ethics. Scripture says to beat a path to the door of the wise man. And this afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, um, trust me, you have beat a path to the door of a wise man. I am very happy to welcome Father Dewan.
1: Thank you, John can't live up to that now. I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, uh, except, of course, I have a small third book uh, in English called uh, "Form." St. Thomas and Form as Something Divine in Things, which was a Marquette Aquinas lecture. Got to get that, put, put that in. And red hot news, there's a group in Bogota who, who are translating Duan into Spanish? Uh, and uh, two books have already come out, so it's uh, it's real. There's even there's even a, uh, a YouTube uh, thing of me lecturing uh, in in Bogota. So it's it's great stuff, great stuff. All right, the 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 um, the uh, title <clears throat> as I have it, because I noticed there was a sort of an abbreviated title on a screen that I saw today. My title is uh, Being a Disciple of St. Thomas Aquinas in the Pursuit of Wisdom. And I underline that. In the Pursuit of Wisdom. Such a topic involves necessarily an element of personal testimony, some advice from one of the older inhabitants. So be it. I'm reminded of something from my days in Washington in the 1990s when I occasionally tuned in to radio programs presenting African-American Christian preachers, soul radio, and uh, some of them, some of those preachers in the midst of their preaching would call to the congregation for approbation with the words do I have a witness? I see myself listening to Thomas, St. Thomas, over the years. And I can say, I want to bear witness. Oh, yes. Uh, Thomas himself provides a moment of personal testimony. <coughs> that seems like a good place to begin. At the beginning of the Summa Contra Gentilis, an encyclopedic work on the truth of the Catholic faith, Thomas begins with a statement on the role of the sage, the wise person, and having set it forth, he says of himself, quotation, therefore having assumed with confidence in the divine mercy to undertake the role of the sage, even though it be beyond our personal powers. Our intended project is to present in our small way the truth that the Catholic faith professes while excluding the contrary errors. For, if I may use the words of Hilary of Poitiers, I am aware that I owe to God as the primary undertaking of my life, that my every word and view may speak of Him. We must begin with a a picture of ourselves. Hmm? Do we see ourselves as engaged in the pursuit of wisdom? The expression the pursuit of wisdom could sound highfalutin, Perhaps if we began with the expression, the pursuit of happiness, we might feel more comfortable with the topic. Still, what I have in mind there is that uh, we humans find ultimate satisfaction, happiness, only through intellectual appreciation of reality, knowing what's it all about, That's not far from the longings of the common man. I can't resist recalling Mrs. T.S. Eliot's letter to the Times of London on the occasion of the death of Bertrand Russell. Mrs. Eliot, herself by then a widow, wrote, Sir, my husband, T.S. Eliot, loved to recount how late one evening he stopped a taxi. As he got in, the taxi driver said, You're T.S. Eliot. When asked how he knew, he replied, Oh, I've got an eye for a celebrity. Only the other evening I picked up Bertrand Russell. And I said to him, Well, Lord Russell, what's it all about? And do you know He couldn't tell me. (laughs) Yours faithfully, Valerie Elliot. As Aristotle said at the beginning of the metaphysics, we, all of us human beings, desire to know. And this desire will only be fully satisfied by knowledge of the supreme good of the whole of nature. I might recall the late Ralph McInerney's contribution entitled Why I Am a Thomist to the summer 2009 issue of the American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly dedicated to contemporary Thomisms. In speaking of St. Thomas himself and his doctrine, Ralph stressed the clear dependence on the naturally known first principles. But what pleased me especially was Ralph's focusing on the particular setting of one's upbringing and our dependence on our teachers, our formative years are terribly important, and in that connection, I regularly again quote Aristotle. Aristotle, in the Nicomachean ethics, carefully notes the condition of the auditors suitable for his lectures. He was a man of few words. Thomas calls him "reviloposia. Really And a few words. And so it is all more notable when, for emphasis, he says the same thing three times in one sentence. We read, quotation, It makes no small difference whether we form habits of one kind or of another from our very youth. It makes a great deal of difference, or rather, all the difference, end of quotation. This is to say that our colleges and universities will work only if our homes work. In this line of thinking, still seeking witnesses, I recall something said by Jacques Maritain in connection with the occasion when Pope Paul VI Looking towards the final session of the Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council, asked uh, Maritain for some suggestions. In December of 1964, Pope Paul sent the philosopher Jean Quiton and Monsignor Pasquale Macchi, Pope Paul's personal secretary, to submit to Maritain a set of questions to discuss. Looking towards the last period of the Council, one element of reply became Maritain's paper, subsequently, on truth, he actually begins, and he's writing to, Saint Paul, uh, to Saint, he's writing to Pope Paul, as uh, follows: "It seems to me that what would answer to the most urgent needs of the Christian people today would be an encyclop, an encyclical on truth, because it is the the significance, the relevance." the songs of truth which today is obliterated and menaced for a great number of people I would certainly not presume to propose some sort of preliminary text for such an encyclical I would simply this is Meryton I would simply like to indicate in my style of the old philosopher a few thoughts that have come to my mind in reflecting on the needs of us the, pu- the poor faithful concerning truth. So this is Maritain's introduction to this paper, which eventually published, called on truth. <coughs> In that paper, Maritain stresses that it is the very meaning of truth, the, the sense which is obliterated or threatened among the people. He sees this obliteration as also happening with to the the, the significance of divine transcendence or of mystery. It's, uh, one has to do with the oblivionness, the obliviousness to such th- these things as what they mean for authentic human living, truth, divine transcendence, mystery. The beginning of Maritain's presentation, ah, magnificent! He speaks of the importance of beginning with the supernaturally revealed truth, and this, as he puts it lived in act, in act to exertion He says, quotation, In our reflections on truth, I believe that it is appropriate to begin from on high by the supernaturally revealed truth, capital T, truth. That is normal in the perspective of Christian thought. It's normal for someone who has received grace of faith to begin these sorts of reflections with the faith, with what is most elevated and most precious in our intellectual equipment. The Christian has the privilege of being placed facing the absolute truth, the truth who is God himself, and God himself revealing himself. In adhering to this absolute truth, he will set to work spontaneously and in lived act the great things that philosophy discovers on its own concerning truth when it understands, for example, that truth is the adequation of of the intellect and the real, or that being is the proper object of the intelligence, which finds its life and liberty in adherence to being. Those things philosophy knows in signified act or by way of conceptualization. But there is an enormous advantage to have lived, experienced, and exercised act these great themes concerning truth before one has conceived them philosophically. And it is in the faith in God who is subsisting truth, in faith in the uncreated truth, and in the incarnate truth, that we live them in a sovereignly eminent degree. Still another witness I wish to recall. I mentioned him today in the uh, homily in the mass. All indicative of my own upbringing. Hmm? Who, who am I who speak to you? Another witness is Etienne Gilson, another French intellectual giant of the twentieth century. In April, nineteen forty-eight, Gilson gave the concluding talk at the Paris. Semaine des Intellectuels Catholiques Catholic Intellectuals Week the theme of the week was Intellectuals and the Charity of Christ and Gilson's paper was entitled Intellectuals and Peace this is 1948, right after the war he spoke of the the fear haunting the human being at that time referring to to the experience of the 20th century and above all to the Second World War, referring to the mistreatment of man by man. The invention and use of the atomic bomb suggested that henceforth there is no limit in the possibilities of destruction of the real. The terrors of the year 2000 seemed predictable enough. But behind the practices, Gilson pointed out to the ideas at work in our time, especially the ideas of Nietzsche on the death of God and their consequences among the surrealists, the Marxists, Sartre, Camus, etc. He saw there a universal will for annihilation. And he continued, and this is why I quote him, I quote him at some length <clears throat> this universal will toward annihilation. We have explained by the pretense that man has of himself replacing God and making of himself a creator. All that we can say to our time, and we say it with all our heart, is that on the contrary, he must re-enter the natural order, which is that of the divine creation, and return to the wisdom of Christ, or rather, return Christ who is wisdom because we are not speaking here of an abstract doctrine we're not speaking here of a theodicy treatise or even of a theology treatise we are speaking of someone someone who our teacher St. Thomas Aquinas has so well pointed out when at the beginning of his commentary on the sentences he asks himself what is wisdom And, in the very first sentence of his treatise, gives the following answer, Among so many opinions of such diverse authors as to what is true wisdom, that of the Apostle Paul is singularly lucid and true. Wisdom, he tells us in the first epistle to Christ, is Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God and whom God has made wisdom also for us. Christ, him whom we find first in the gospel, whom we meet, if we wish to, on each page of this divine book, to whom we can speak ourselves in all simplicity. I had almost said, man to man. Let us say, at least, to the man God. To whom we can say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, if you will, you can heal us. He's there, available to us, and we can, if we so wish, make him available to all. And quotation. You see that I am recalling a very ancient theme. Plato, in the Republic, is, presents the society, the culture, as... The greatest of all sophists. The only hope is in divine help, providing some good environment, some good schools. What of my own upbringing? I'll just remember one thing. I had a, in high school an apologetics course, and I saw for the first time something about St. Thomas's Five Ways that excited me and I went to the public library and got the text and uh, the rest is history uh, no but um, uh, it fascinates I, I, very much but um, I read some philosophical notes of my brothers who were much ahead of me in, in age and so uh, had just uh, uh, gone into college but one text I want to report at least one text that really got and that was a book that we got, I think, for the Book of the Month my family. And it, was, uh, it had uh, it had text of Pascal's pensée in, in uh, English translation. And here is the text that wowed me. I'm sure it must have wowed a lot of people. Man is a mere reed, the weakest thing in nature. But he is a thinking reed the entire universe need not arm itself to crush him. A vapor, a drop of water, is sufficient. But if the universe were to crush him, man would still be nobler than his destroyer, <clears throat> because he, know, he knows that he dies, and also the advantage that the universe has over him. But the universe knows nothing of that. Our whole dignity, therefore consistent thought from this we must rise not from space and time which we cannot fill let us endeavor then to think aright this is the principle of morality end of quotation but our subject is being a disciple of Thomas in the pursuit of wisdom I quoted Gilson himself, quoting Thomas, who sent us to St. Paul and ultimately to Christ as the wisdom of God. <coughs> but what does Thomas tell us about the meaning of the word wisdom? Here, while I certainly encourage everyone to read or reread the opening chapters of the Summa Contra Gentiles on the nature of wisdom, I will here and now look at the very first question of the Summa Theologiae where St. Thomas explains the nature of the knowledge that the Summa contains, the knowledge he there calls Sacra Doctrina, the holy teaching. Today I will give much attention to the very first article in that very first question, which presents the necessity that there be this holy teaching, a teaching that takes us beyond the philosophical disciplines, Thomas eventually that is in article 6 of that first question teaches us why the holy teaching is the highest human wisdom let's go read straight to that article 6 remembering that what is proper to the holy teaching is that it comes to us through divine revelation that The, uh, not through the investigative capacity for the human reason is it wisdom Thomas tells us it is to be said that this teaching among all human wisdoms is maximally wisdom not merely in some particular field but unqualifiedly for since it is the rule of the wise person to put things in order and to pass judgment. And judgment concerning lower things is had through the higher cause. That person is called wise in each particular field who considers the highest cause in that field. For example, in the field of building construction, the craftsman who specifies the form of the building is called wise and an architect, that is, as is the master craftsman, relative to the lower craftsmen who shape the lumber and prepare the stones. As is said in 1 Corinthians 3, as a wise architect, I have laid the foundation. And again, in the field of the whole of human life, the prudent person is called wise inasmuch as he orders human acts towards their fitting goal. As is said in Proverbs, wisdom for a human being is prudence. <clears throat> Therefore, that person who considers what is unqualifiedly the highest cause in the entire universe, of the entire universe, which cause is God, is most of all to be called wise. Hence, knowledge of divine things is called wisdom, as Augustine makes clear. Now, the holy teaching most properly determines concerning God according as he is the highest cause, because it does so not merely as regards what is knowable through creatures, which the philosophers have come to know. As is said in Romans 1, what is known regarding God has been manifested to them, to the philosophers, but also as regards what is known to God himself alone about himself and communicated to others through revelation. Hence, the holy teaching is called wisdom most of all. So, I continue then, this is the primary wisdom, the maximal wisdom, which, what God reveals to us about himself that is otherwise known only to himself. No wonder then that in the sentences Thomas pointed to Paul's having presented Christ as the wisdom of God, as the best account of wisdom. Now, the need for the human being, the need for the human being to know the doctrine contained in the Summa Theologiae, the doctrine Thomas calls the holy teaching, is explained in the very first article of the work. And we should notice how this point is put, this issue is put. Is there need for a teaching beyond the philosophical disciplines? The first article of the Summa affirms our need a teaching that transcends the teaching of the philosophers, of quotation, it is to be said that it was necessary for human well-being, human salvation, that there be a teaching by divine revelation beyond the philosophical disciplines which are worked out by human reason. End of quotation. The primary reason for such a need is the nature of the goal that God has assigned for the human being. A goal that surpasses our natural knowing powers. What is the human being for? Let us not rush through this first article, of the first question of the Summa. It merits much reflection. Thomas says, quotation, The human being is ordered towards God as towards a goal that exceeds reason's comprehension. In accordance with the text of Isaiah, I has not seen, O God, without you, what you have prepared for those who love you. And Thomas goes on, but the goal is supposed to be known in advance by human beings, who are supposed to order their intentions and their actions towards the goal. Hence it was necessary for the well-being of the human being that some things be made known to him through divine revelation things that surpass human reason. That is, the human being as a kind of thing is meant to seek known goals. Thus it was necessary that God make known to us, reveal to us the goal he had decided on. Our benefiting from that revelation must be through an act of supernatural faith. Still, there's more to the human situation, to your and my situation, than that, as Thomas continues in the first same first article, even as regards the truths concerning God, that the human mind can know by its natural powers, there is need for a revelation, and so for faith. We read, quotation, furthermore, regarding those things about God, that the human that, the, that can be investigated by human reason, it was necessary that man be instructed by divine revelation. Because the truth about God, as investigated by reason, would have come only to a few people. And after a long time, and with an admixture of errors, many errors, and yet a knowledge of this truth depends the entire ultimate well-being of the human being which is to be found in God. This presentation here, by Thomas, is crucial for our sound conception of ourselves and our own situation in reality. While there are things about God that human reason can discover, that sort of human knowledge is arrived at with certainty only by a few. This brings St. Thomas to the conclusion of his article based on the two just-seen reasons, quotation. Thus, therefore, so that ultimate well-being might come about for human beings, both most suitably and more certainly, it was necessary that they be instructed concerning divine things through divine revelation. I I aim to stress that this article with its two reasons, is meant for all of us, and for most, if not all, of our lives. I've actually met people who thought that Thomas did not mean to include among the needed revealed truths the truth of the very existence of a god. Surely, they thought, he means other further philosophical points. I accordingly stress that when discussing later in detail the range of supernatural faith, Thomas explicitly speaks of the need to believe by supernatural faith the truth that God exists. This is the case until one truly understands the power of the philosophical demonstration. We read quotation from the the second book of the second book. It is necessary for the human being to accept at the level of faith not only those things which are above reason, but also those which can be known by reason. And this for three reasons, the first of which is so that the human being come more quickly to a knowledge of the divine truth. For the science to which it pertains to prove that God exists and other such things about God is proposed lastly to be learned by the human being, many other sciences being presupposed. And thus the human being would come only after much much of his lifetime to a knowledge of God. Why am I insisting on this point about ourselves relative to knowledge of God? It's because in our rather secularist culture, our rationalist culture, we are likely to see our faith as bearing solely upon those things which transcend reason and see the very existence of a god as readily available to what we might call our natural selves. Thomas explicitly speaks of the need to believe, by supernatural faith, the truth that God exists. This is the case until one truly understands the power of the philosophical demonstration. This caution of Thomas, a line of discussion he found in the writings of the 12th century Jewish theologian Moses Maimonides, is quite in accord with the stress that Aristotle put on the difficulty of metaphysical knowledge, the philosophical knowledge which attains to some truths about God. It's the knowledge that is most difficult for the human being. It is divine knowledge, because God alone can have it. Or, at any rate, God above all others, said Aristotle. It's true that Thomas points to a spontaneous natural reasoning to the existence of a God, something that any human being can be expected to have concluded. We see this, for example, when he asks the question still later in the the second part of the second part, whether it pertains to natural law that one should offer sacrifice. He says, yes, it does. We read, quotation, natural reason declares forcefully to man that he is placed under some superior being because of the defects which he experiences in himself, with regard to which he needs to be aided and directed by some superior. And whatever that superior is, this it is, which among all men is called a god. But just as in natural things, the lower are naturally placed under the higher, so also natural reason strongly declares to man, seconded by natural inclination, that he should exhibit in a way in keeping with his own self submission and honor to that which is above man. Offer sacrifice. Here the resulting precept of natural law, is our uh, duty to offer sacrifice pertains the the virtue of religion the highest form of justice however what interests me at present is the nature of the knowledge of god that is involved the fruit of natural reasoning and it is seen as universal pertaining to man by his very nature nevertheless thomas sees this sort of knowledge of a god as too easily confused or overturned even as to god's very existence Besides the many odd conceptions of God's nature that often appear at this level of human awareness, very even the very existence sometimes. Though I must, uh, Saint Thomas sees it as an evidence of moral uh, weakness that uh, you get to the point of saying uh, there is no God. Um, what the faith provides is the certainty of the existence and of the goodness of God. I want to suggest the conception we should have of ourselves as rightly thankful if we have been born into families living the faith and are thus meeting God from the outset, as Jacques Maritain said, in a wonderfully true and wholesome way, and live to act. This certainly does not mean that one takes no interest in the philosophical approach to knowledge of God. I say this because, again with St. Thomas, I note quotation when a man has a prompt will to believe he loves the believed truth and he thinks about it and looks at it from every angle to see if some reasons for it can be found and in that respect human reason does not exclude the merit of faith but rather is a sign of greater merit just as the passion following reason following reason in the realm of moral virtues, is a sign of a more prompt will, as was said earlier. End of quotation. So also, if one does come to understand the demonstration of such a preamble, such as the existence of a God, this does not imply that one loses the merit of faith. As long as one has in charity the will to believe, as Thomas teaches, quotation, Demonstrative arguments leading to those truths which the faith holds, but which nevertheless are preambles to the articles, though they diminish, those demonstrative arguments diminish the note of faith, because they make apparent what what is proposed. Still, they do not diminish the note of charity, through which the will is ready to believe those things even if they were not apparent. And so, the note of merit is not diminished. I have begun with the believer because so much depends on the spirit in which one enters into study. Now, I have a section here, the last section, on Thomas and the future of metaphysics. Thus far I have been taking for granted that Thomas is truly the master the magisterium has endorsed through the years as specially gifted in order to point directly to some supremely important features of the doctrine of St. Thomas. I will recall the, the, uh, the call for renewal in metaphysics made by Pope John Paul II in his encyclical Fides et Ratio. The late Pope John Paul spoke of the demands that the Word of God makes on philosophy today. First, philosophy is required to recover its sapiential fullness as a search for the ultimate and overarching meaning of life. Secondly, it must put on display the human capacity to know the very essence of things. Thirdly, and indeed the two previous demands themselves require it, there is need for a philosophy of a truly metaphysical nature one which is able to go beyond the merely empirical indications in such a way that, pursuing the truth, it arrives at some ultimate and fundamental absolute. That the doctrine of St. Thomas already takes us along these three lines of work, I say there is no doubt. A philosophical ethics not having as principle the true ultimate end of the human being is unthinkable in his perspective. And such an ethics receives its principle from the metaphysician. Moreover, as Thomas teaches, the human intellect, as properly conceived, takes us beyond the object of sense as such, to the within of things. I will limit myself here in this talk to the third requirement, an ontology which carries us to an ultimate and fundamental absolute the metaphysics of divine transcendence. I once was asked there was a shortage of card-carrying theologians for the moment to give a short night course on the mystery of the Incarnation. At the conclusion, one of the rather mature students presented me with a little little book. Whose title made my students' point Your God is Too Small the title of the book well yes I'm sure most of us would admit that our poor efforts do not do justice to the almighty however it is crucial that our metaphysics indicate the way our notions are both appropriate and infinitely inadequate because there is general recognition of this need metaphysicians in the Thomist fold have regularly worked to make the point Father A.D. Certilange sometimes spoke of a definitional agnosticism. So strongly did Thomas stress our ignorance relative to God. Indeed, Thomas himself insisted that quotation, then only does one know God truly when one believes him to be beyond everything the human mind can possibly think about God, quotation. Nevertheless, that's only part of the prescription for knowing God truly. In this context, I wish to bring Thomas's attention to Thomas's attention once more—a teaching of the Master that I think has been treated with insufficient seriousness. One thinks of so. <coughs> Bonius the great commentator. Bonniers' celebrated complaint about Thomas: "Thomas de nolunt audire," that Thomas don't want to listen to, to Thomas Aquinas. Uh, in the Summa contra Gentiles, as we read, <coughs> I have a text here that's one of my favorites those things which in creatures are divided are unqualifiedly one in God. Thus, for example, in the creature, essence and being, essay, the act of being, essence and being in the creature are other. And in some creatures, that which subsists in its own essence is also other than its essence or nature. For this man, is neither his own humanity nor his being, but God is his essence and his being. And so he goes on, and though these in God are one in the truest way, nevertheless, there is in God whatever pertains to the intelligible role of the subsisting thing, of the essence, or of the being, essay. For it belongs to him not to be in another, inasmuch as he is subsisting, to be a what, inasmuch as he is essence, and being an act, in by reason of being itself." End of quotation. This is to say that even in the divine simplicity, or rather especially in the divine simplicity, there are three ineluctable metaphysical dimensions or contributions. Since what pertains to them is found in the divine simplicity, they clearly name pure perfections. This is so even though in our mode of being, one has priority of perfection over another. Thus, if essence, as we know it in creatures, is potential with respect to the act of being, this is something that belongs to essence, not precisely as essence, but as such essence. My point is that our metaphysics will benefit by intense interest in all three of these intellectual and, and distinct contributions, the subsisting thing, the essence, the act of being. The reason I stress this is that distinguished scholars have sometimes spoken as though Thomas presented God as beyond essence. The truth is rather that he presents essence as most truly essence in God. This in turn means that God is not beyond intelligibility. He rather is so intelligible as to, be, as to transcend the intelligibility we can adequately cope with. The second closely related point I wish to make about the metaphysics of transcendence concerns another set of texts of Thomas that have not, as it seems to me, been given sufficient attention. Obviously, John Paul, II was encouraging an interest in the metaphysics of creation and the creator, Thomas, in this regard, presented God as cause of being as being. Because that is presented by Thomas very much as the unity of a field of participants in uh, the act of being, what is this being as being that God creates? That is presented as the unity of a field of participants in the act of being, standing under the subsistent act of being of God, One may lose sight of how complete, how full the divine product is. God makes good goods. One may consider it as essentially relational relative to the subsistent act of being. That's not quite correct. As Thomas explains, the relation to the first cause is a property of the creature, flowing from it as from a being by participation. That is, the doctrine of being by participation is not essentially relational, but entails a relation. This is important for an appreciation of the fullness of the divine effect, being as being. So full is this effect that that, uh, Thomas describes the creator as the cause of totem ends, being in its entirety. Were it not for a doctrine of analogy of being, there would be no room for calling the Creator a being, because his product is a whole of being. It's, it's, real, it's really being that he, he produces. That this is not an accidental aspect of Thomas's metaphysics of transcendence he emerges very strongly in discussions of providence and the power of God as providence. It's well known that Thomas presents human free choice as inconceivable without prior divine moving causality. Yet, uh, However, it is not sufficiently stressed, I would say, that this prior causality is conceivable only inasmuch as God is the cause of being as being. Thomas regularly appeals to this doctrine to present God as the cause of the proper differences of being as being, namely the possible or contingent and the necessary—that is, it is being as a nature or essence that has the Creator and universal providence as its origin and as its constant source of events. Aristotle, in the sixth book of the Metaphysics, discusses being per being by happenstance only to set it aside is not suitable for scientific study. In Thomas's commentary on this, an objection is raised to the very fact that Aristotle affirms the existence of such being, what just happens. Surely, the objector complains, surely this is against the doctrine of divine providence. Thomas in reply explains how, though from the point of view of divine providential causality, nothing happens by chance. Nevertheless, from the point of view of secondary created causality, chance does exist. The explanation turns on the doctrine of God as cause of being as being. That is, cause of the nature of being. Quotation, this is St. Thomas. One must know that on the same cause depend the effect and all those items which are essential, let's say, essential properties of the effect. For example, just as man is caused man is caused by nature, so also are his essential properties such as capability of laughter and susceptibility to mental discipline. But if some cause does not make man unqualified, but makes man such, it will not belong to it to constitute those things which are the essential properties of man, but merely to take advantage of them. For example, the political ruler makes a, this is a holy and wholesome thought. It's what's supposed to happen. The political ruler makes a man a good citizen. Still, he does not make him to be susceptible to discipline of the mind. Rather, he uses that property of man in order to make of him a good citizen. But as has been said, being, inasmuch as it is being, has us God. Uh, as his cause, God himself. Hence, just as to the, to the divine providence, being itself is submitted, so also are all the properties of being as being, among which are the necessary and the contingent. Therefore, to divine providence it pertains not merely to make this being, but to give it, uh, to, uh, that, but that it give to that being contingents or necessity. End quotation. Thomas goes on to make the point, no other cause gives to its effects the modes of necessity and contingency. That is proper to the cause of being as being. It's not enough to appeal to causal hierarchy in order to present God as prior to human freedom and to all contingent causality. No causal priority other than that which pertains to the cause of being as being will satisfy the mind in this respect. This fullness of the divine product, likewise, explains the presence in created reality of the mode of the good, which sometimes fails. It is thus essential for an adequate treatment of the problem of the existence of the bad in the product of an infinitely good God. Indeed, the doctrine of God as cause of the nature of being, and thus of the contingent and the necessary, also means that what, from the viewpoint of secondary causality, is a chance event is planned from the viewpoint of the highest cause there is no conflict between a theory of evolution as resulting from random mutation and the attribution to that same evolution of that same evolution the attribution of that same evolution to design and planning that's all i to say thank you for your attention I'm, oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I, I don't guarantee that I can answer the questions, but I do. I'm open to hearing the questions very much. So it, uh, let, ah, very good. good. Yes. Hey. Father, hi, Steve Snyder. Yes, um, nice I to see
0: you. sat on my uh, PhD dissertation um, examination board. I certainly learned from him charity and patience mm-hmm. oh, and yes. experience, and when I try to. Uh, Father, at Christendom College, we require six one-semester courses of philosophy and six one-semester courses of theology of all our students. How would you answer the student who has heard your talk and say, who says, Christendom is misallocating its resources? It should be 12 theology, because that's where uh, true wisdom is.
1: How would I? Well, I would... That's a, that's a softball. A uh, love, a love. Uh, those same students, if they're good theology students, if, if they've got what it takes to be good theology students, I would say, are the ones that St. Thomas is saying, those who, who uh, believe in a doctrine love that doctrine they believe in and want to find all reasons that they can for it. So it's... it's, uh, it's uh, those very students of theology, I hope, would be the best philosophy students as well because they would be lovers of those truths that uh, the philosopher uh, tries to talk about and, uh, and uh, they will want the philosopher to do as good a job as he can. They will be more critical of the philosophers from that point of view, I might say, as well. Uh, so that's the kind of answer I would give that uh, that I think as crucial that text you know those who believe in the, in, in, in it will love the believed truth and search for reasons for it that's that's uh the I, I love softballs because i love to watch home runs. <laughs> 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 let's see um that's any, no, no no other no other uh you? Hey, there's a hand. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, Father. Um,
0: what would you say separates the disciplines of theology and philosophy strictly conceived? That is to say, is it beneficial to study human reason alone, as opposed to human reason necessarily always joined to revelation, to, see to, what ex- to really explore to what extent human reason can get on its own, so that we understand where it must be informed?
1: Well, I think that good study of of these things is going to focus on proper objects, and uh, in other words, uh, it's to identify what do we mean by uh, what is proper to reason as uh, as as a power, and uh, so it means that uh, you'll have to uh, uh, you you don't say uh, here we're going to do we're going to only have involved. The, the, the theological mind or the or the uh, the metaphysical mind, but that uh, any work in this direction is going to involve some metaphysical physical work as well as theological work. Um, so I don't I don't see it as uh, one one uh, getting in the way of the other uh, because it's a matter it's a matter of the philosopher wants to rightly define. Uh, Knowledge, for instance, uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the uh, revelation is not going to undo that in any way. I just don't see any any conflict there, really. Uh, again, there's no su- substitution for philosophical thinking on philosophical objects if you want philosophy. It's, it's got to be. It's got to be authentic philosophical thinking and that 's why see if if these are truths that are susceptible to demonstration, uh, then you really want to uh, establish the demonstration if you can, but the truth the the, the truth also is that uh, these are tough items, and uh, the the uh, the history of philosophy shows it. Um, in some papers, I like, uh, in, in this line, I, I've made reference to um, a text in The Sophist of Plato about the, a permanent war about what being is. Seems like there will always be this permanent war. Uh, there'll always be, as I put it, Socrates among us, you see. Uh, it's, but this is, the, this is the, the, the struggle of the human mind to cope with, with reality. It's not So uh, it makes sense to quote Moses Maimonides and Aristotle and all these people about the difficulty and to look around and see what it's, it's you know, uh, recently, well, this in the last year, the New York Times has started a philosophy blog, I don't know if you've seen that, called The Stone. Having to do with the philosopher's stone, I don't know whether that was a good omen or not about the, about the quality. But the uh, the man who who inaugurated it, his name was Critchley, said the new school, in the, in the new school of social research. Um, he started out by saying uh, he wasn't going to define philosophy. Uh, he was just going to t- talk about uh, philosophers. <laughs> Uh, in fact, then he went to, uh, uh, to Plato, uh, to, uh, to the Theatetus, I think, uh, <clears throat> as I recollect, but in fact, when you read the Theatetus, you found Plato saying plenty of what it constituted being a philosopher by the object, what the objects were, and, you know, the, what justice is, and all this kind of thing, uh, and, uh, I said, you know, I thought, well, at least he sent us to Plato, Critchley did. But then I read reactions in later, uh, later uh, weeks and months to this uh, blog. And I got one that, that uh, I noted, uh, somebody writing in and saying they had a blog on, well, say, we'll say in physics or in chemistry or something like that. He said, I learned all kinds of things every time we had a blog. In these philosophy blogs, I haven't learned anything. You know that it was there. Was, how much unity was there in the different philosophy blogs by different people, and so on? So, so the the difficulty is real. That, that uh, but uh, uh, I would say that uh, that's one of the truths that uh, you learn from uh, the, the ground up, from from your youth up, as a believer that uh, there is some hope for philosophy. Uh, it can be done. And it's, it's remarkable that uh, it's, it has been very much the Catholic schools and, and the, the positively Catholic schools that have insisted that philosophy is real and doable and does get answers um, to, important, to the important questions in, in a certain range. So there really is then this respect I'd say for um, that distinction between the natural truths which are the preambles to faith and to the true objects of, uh, of faith hmm? uh, but uh, at the same time the doctrine is for most of our lives we may expect it to be uh, lovers of the truth of philosophy uh, trying to uh, trying to uh, establish Really, to see the adequacy of the demonstrations that are involved. Yes, yes. Uh Father, a few years ago, in your presidential address to the American Catholic
0: Philosophical Association, you opened by saying something that always stayed with me, and that was something about paraphrasing, even in my
1: No, I must. Uh, I'll love to correct the questioner. You know, um, uh, the word was apprentice. I was an apprentice. Uh, there's, uh, yeah, I'm still an apprentice. Uh, because, now that's that's because uh, I got that line, that general line of thinking, from Professor song in, in a little uh, one of those Marquette Aquinas lectures called uh, History of Philosophy." And philosophical education, and the, the, what is the role of the history of philosophy in philosophical education? And um, the point was that um, the, uh, uh, you, to do to, to get into philosophy, you should be apprenticed to a philosopher, and great philosophers are very scarce. Um, as uh, Gilson put it in that book I I take no responsibility for this statement but as Gilson put it in that book great philosophers are very scarce large countries such as Russia have never seen one but anyway (laughs) the Russians might not like that but, but, um, but still great philosophers are very scarce his point was that you can be associated with Aristotle you can be associated with Plato you can be associated with Thomas Aquinas uh, these wonderful minds! What a society to live with! You can you can think along, think along with Thomas Aquinas, and uh, that uh, and I, that's why I uh, I would always say that. You see that uh, that's, that's why I think it's important how we see ourselves in our in our uh, intellectual work, and uh, I think that uh, that's a very healthy kind of. Uh, approach to, to life in, 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 in academia, yes, it's at, uh, I don't know whether that is it. Uh, all right. Jump in so okay. we have some uh, refreshments. And anyone who has
0: further questions is welcome to, to stay. Father,
1: thank you so very much oh, for your time. All right.